The Irish poet Seamus Heaney is one of the finest poets writing in English today. Winner of the Nobel Prize, holder of a poetry chair at Oxford, teacher of poetry at Harvard. He is, in my view, the very best writer of poetry, the most cogent and pertinent writer of poetry of our day, of the poets who are writing in English. Today we're going to look at four of his poems. They all cluster around a certain concern of his about the intersection between poetry and politics. One of the most significant facts about Heaney's life is that he was born and raised and educated in the north of Ireland. We all know that the north of Ireland has been an area in which there has been enormous political contention, a contention that has risen to the level of violence on many occasions. Let me begin with a poem from a sequence called The Singing School. This poem is called Summer 1969. In the first line of the poem, the constabulary, the police forces are allowing a mob to fire into the falls, an area in which uh, working class people live. So we have, in some sense, Protestants murdering Catholics, massacring Catholics. And while this happens, Heaney is in Madrid. It's summertime, it's very hot, he sweats a lot, his apartment is flat, in which the first stanza is set, is hot and the smells of the street arise. He's trying to read the life of Joyce, the great Irish writer. There is, of course, a great distance between Ireland and Spain, between being in the middle of political happenings and reading books. In the second stanza, he talks with some friends, one of whom advises that he should go back and try and be in touch with the Irish people, and another says, be like Federico Garcia Lorca, the Spanish poet who got involved in the Spanish Civil War. In the face of the violence on television, the suggestions and importunings of his friends, the heat, he says, I retreated to the cool of the Prado. The Prado is the great museum of Madrid, and there he encounters a series of paintings by Francisco Goya called Shootings of the Third of May. What you need to know is that these paintings portray revolution, violence, politics, exactly the things that Heaney has been trying to escape by leaving his flat and going to the museum. Here then is Summer 1969 by Seamus Heaney. While the constabulary covered the mob firing into the falls, I was suffering only the bullying son of Madrid. Each afternoon in the casserole heat of the flat, as I sweated my way through the life of Joyce, stinks 
from the fish market rose like the reek off a flax dam. At night on the balcony, jewels of wine, a sense of children in their dark corners, old women in black shawls near open windows, the air a canyon rivering in Spanish. We talked our way home over starlit plains where patent leather of the Guardia Seville gleamed like fish bellies in flax-poisoned waters. Go back, one said. Try to touch the people. Another conjured Lorca from his hill. We sat through death counts and bullfight reports on the television. Celebrities arrived from where the real thing still happened. I retreated to the cool of the Prado. Goya's shootings of the 3rd of May covered a wall, the thrown-up arms and spasm of the rebel, the helmeted and knapsack military, the efficient rake of the fusillade. In the next room his nightmares, grafted to the palace wall, dark cyclones, hosting, breaking, Saturn, jeweled in the blood of his own children, gigantic chaos turning his brute hips over the world. Also that home gang where two berserks club each other to death for honor's sake, grieved in a bog and sinking. He painted with his fists and elbows, flourished the stained cape of his heart as history charged. I find those final two lines among the most moving in contemporary poetry. They refer to Goya painting not as we expect painters to paint with brushes and with finesse, but with his body and his passion. And his painting emerges as he puts himself into the world and says, come at me, world, as a bullfighter says to a bull. Earlier in the poem, he's been watching television, the poet, and he sees, interspersed with reports from Ireland, he sees reports of bullfights. So these final lines, he painted with his fists and elbows, flourished the stained cape of his heart as history charged. I think it's hard for an attentive reader not to get a sense that although Heaney in this poem is in retreat from the problems of the world, going to the museum, that he is brought face to face with the need to confront those problems, to deal with the violence, to be a party to what happens in the world, to flourish the stained cape of his heart as history charged. We turn from summer 1969 to a poem in a sequence of poems that Heaney wrote called Station Island. Station Island is an island just off the coast of Ireland. It has, it's a place of pilgrimage and on it are the Stations of the Cross. And in this sequence of poems, there are 12 poems, Heaney performs this pilgrimage. It's a secular and poetic pilgrimage as he tries to come to terms with the world, his 
what he has inherited, the poetic legacy that's been handed to him, the situation of contemporary Ireland and his own doubts about his own poetry. In the two most important poems in this sequence, poems seven and eight, both of which we will pay attention to, he confronts death and violence in the north of Ireland. This is poem seven from the sequence Station Island. In it, Heaney is by the edge of the sea at the seventh station, and as he is at that station meditating, the image of his friend, the friend of his youth, his soccer teammate, enters into his head at first as a presence, and then he sees his face. His face is marred because his friend has been shot by a Protestant extremist, by paramilitary operation, has been shot and killed. So his friend comes back from the dead. Heaney says, the shock is still in me at what I saw, because his friend's brow is shot away and he is blood besotted. His friend says, don't, don't get so worried, easy now. And tells the story of that night when he was asleep and there was a knocking on the door of his shop and he opened up for people who said they needed medicine for a sick baby. He had some inkling, some strong inkling that this might be violence at the door. And then he shot and says, from then on, you know as much about it as I do. And Heaney at that point asks him questions. Did they say nothing? His friend says nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform? Heaney asks. And then Heaney looks at the face of his friend. His friend speaks to him and says, oh, I remember when you were young and you went out on dates. You've put on some weight since then. And I think in a very subtle way, it's not full of sentiment, this poem, Heaney's heart breaks as he thinks of the loss of this wonderful, decent person, this stylist on the soccer team, this person who never harmed anyone. And he feels that maybe he, Seamus Heaney, should have done more than he's done to prevent this violence or to, to take part in whatever made his friend into a sacrificial victim in the struggles in the north of Ireland. Let me read the poem and then talk a bit more about the truly remarkable ending of this poem. This is section seven from Station Island, in which Heaney is, I think, kneeling by the water, uh, meditating, and his friend's image comes into his head. I had come to the edge of the water. 
soothed. I had come to the edge of the water, soothed by just looking, idling over it as if it were a clear barometer or a mirror, when his reflection did not appear, but I sensed a presence entering into my concentration on not being concentrated as he spoke my name. And though I was reluctant, I turned to meet his face, and the shock is still in me at what I saw. His brow was blown open above the eye, and blood had dried on his neck and cheek. Easy now, he said. It's only me. You've seen men as raw after a football match. What time it was when I was wakened up, I still don't know. But I heard this knocking, knocking, and it scared me like the phone in the small hours. So I had the sense not to put on the light, but looked out from behind the curtain. I saw two customers on the doorstep and an old Land Rover with the doors open parked on the street. So I let the curtain drop. But they must have been waiting for it to move, for they shouted to come down into the shop. She started to cry then and roll around the bed, lamenting and lamenting to herself, not even asking who it was. Is your head astray or what's come over you? I roared, more to bring myself to my senses than out of any real anger at her, for the knocking shook me the way they kept it up, and her whinging and half-screeching made it worse. All the time they were shouting, Shop! Shop! So I pulled on my shoes and a sports coat and went back to the window and called out, What do you want? Could you quiet in the racket or I'll not come down at all? There's a child not well. Open up and see what you have got. Pills or a powder or something in a bottle, one of them said. He stepped back off the footpath so I could see his face in the street lamp. And when the other moved, I knew them both. But bad and all as the knocking was, the quiet hit me worse. She was quiet herself now, lying dead still, whispering to watch out. At the bedroom door, I switched on the light. It's odd they didn't look for a chemist. Who are they anyway at this time of night, she asked me, with the eyes standing in her head. I know them to see, I said, but something made me reach and squeeze her hand across the bed before I went downstairs into the aisle of the shop. I stood there, going weak in the legs. I remember the stale smell of cooked meat or something coming through as I went to open up. From then on, you know as much about it as I do. Did they say nothing? Nothing. What would they say? Were they in uniform? Not masked in any way? They were barefaced as they would be in the day. Shites, thinking they were the be-all and the end-all. Not that it is any consolation, but they were caught, I told him, and got jail. Big-limbed, decent, open-faced, he stood forgetful of everything now except what was ever was welling up in his spoiled head, beginning to smile. You've put on weight since you did your courting in that big Austin you got the loan of on a Sunday night.
through life and death he had hardly aged. There was always an athlete's cleanliness shining off him, and except for the ravaged forehead and the blood, he was still that same rangy midfielder in a blue jersey and starched pants, the one stylist on the team, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim. Forgive the way I have lived indifferent. Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement. I surprised myself by saying. Forgive my eye, he said. All that's above my head. And then a stun of pain seemed to go through him, and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. That is a wonderful poem. It is an elegy to his departed friend. It tells things as they happened without overplaying them. But as he looks at his friend near the end, having heard the story, having heard how he was gunned down, a massacre of an innocent, seeing him looking like he had years before when he played soccer and he was the, the wonderful player, the handsome young man, the perfect, clean, unthinkable victim as Heaney sees him. And here we recall the attitudes, I think, of summer 1969. Heaney recalls that he himself has not been involved. And by not being involved, the violence happens, continues, is allowed to happen. Who knows? He says, surprising himself, forgive the way I have lived indifferent Forgive my timid, circumspect involvement. To a surprise as he kneels by the station and even as he writes the poem, his friend and his presence through memory is an accusation. And all his friend, this innocent person can say is, forgive my eye, he said, all that's above my head and then a stun of pain seemed to go through him, and he trembled like a heat wave and faded. There's suffering and pain and death and wounding in the world. And Heaney, in this wonderful poem, asks himself, what have I done? What role have I played? Has it been enough? I want to go on to section eight, but first I need to read you another poem. This one is called The Stranded Lofbeg. It is an elegy, a poem in memory of someone who died. It's a pastoral elegy. It takes place in the fields and the agricultural world, as many elegies based on classical elegies do, in fact. 
It begins with a epigraph, a short quotation translated into English from Dante's Purgatorio. And it's in memory of Colin McCartney, a cousin of the poet, who, like the character in the last poem, was murdered in an act of sectarian violence in the north of Ireland. The poem begins the first stanza as his cousin is driving up a hill far from the lowlands in which he was born and raised. He says, what happened? Was it a roadblock or did a car overtake you? Something happened to make you stop. Then you were gunned down. In the second stanza, he says, you heard guns when you were a child. When I was a child, hunters would shoot. And even then there was a sense of fright and perhaps horror at gunfire among these children like his cousin, his cousin who took care of the cows, who was a farmer from a farm family. Then in the third stanza, Heaney imagines cows still grazing on the hillside where his cousin was born and raised. He imagines a memory of himself and his cousin harvesting hay there, there with their with their size haying and intruding on the memory of that past haying when he turns around to look at the memory of his cousin he sees his cousin as he is in the more recent present blood bespattered muddy from lying in a ditch and he says kindly and tenderly i will clean you up i dab you clean with moss and then he takes rushes this is a reference to the dante epigraph you'll hear in a moment and he weaves a green scapular that's a kind of sleeveless garment worn by a monk to wear over your shroud so this poem itself is the green scapular the the garment for his cousin to wear in death the Strand at Lough Beg, in memory of Colin McCartney. Here's the epigraph from Dante. All round this little island on the Strand, far down below there where the breakers strive, grow the tall rushes from the oozy sand. Leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills towards Newtown Hamilton, past the Fuse Forest, out beneath the stars. Along that road, a high, bare pilgrim's track, where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goat beards, and dog's eyes in a demon pack, blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? A fake roadblock? The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes and stalling engine voices, heads hooded and the cold-nosed gun? Or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew, the lowland clays and waters of Luff Beg, Church Island Spire, its soft tree line of you. 
there, let me say that's in childhood at Lofbeg, there you once heard guns fired behind the house long before rising time when duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes, but still were scared to find spent cartridges, acrid, brassy, genital, ejected, on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours and yours and mine fought shy, spoke an old language of conspirators and could not crack the whip or seize the day. Big voice scullions, herders, feelers round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers in buyers, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of yours, the cattle graze up to their bellies in an early mist, and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through squeaking sedge, drowning in dew. Like a dull blade with its edge honed bright, Lofbeg half shines under the haze. I turn because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me to find you on your knees with blood and roadside muck in your hair and eyes, then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin. I dab you, clean with moss, fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you under the arms and lay you flat. With rushes that shoot green again, I plate green scapulars to wear over your shroud. That is a lovely elegy in which Heaney mourns the death of his cousin. Death is transformed insofar as death can be transformed into homage and tenderness and a sense of loss and beauty. But in section eight of Station Island, as you will see, Heaney returns not just to the death of his cousin, Colin McCartney, but to this very poem. In section eight, again the poet is by the sea, again he is at a station of the cross, in fact at one point uh, as he's meditating uh, another pilgrim walks by him, and his meditation is once again intruded upon by the memory of a friend. This time the friend is an archaeologist, and he remembers visiting him in the hospital when he visited, and the poem suggests was unable to face not only death, but dying and loss and the pain of his friend. He focused on the heart monitor, watched the heartbeats pulsing across the screen. That monitor fascinated him and scared him. He left the hospital feeling, I, I didn't really talk to my friend Tom. He left, he says, feeling guilty and empty, feeling I had said nothing, and that, as usual, 
I had somehow broken covenants and failed an obligation. And that line, or those lines about guilt and emptiness, not saying what needed to be said, that as usual he broke a covenant, as usual he failed an obligation, that sense of not responding adequately to the world, which we saw hinted at in summer 1969 and which clearly dominated the ending of Section 7 of Station Island when he, when he says to his friend, forgive, he says, forgive the way I have lived indifferent, forgive my timid circumspect involvement. That guilt and emptiness is fostered by his friend who responds, you know, you could have seen me more. You could have been more present for me. I, I felt that I should have seen far more of you, his friend says. And then the poet is struck speechless. He doesn't know what to say at this quiet accusation that he has not been sufficient to what life and human obligation demand of him. And he thinks of some of the objects his archaeologist friends studied, and he thinks of a gift his friend gave him and how perhaps he did not sufficiently repay this gift. But then, he says, but he had gone. The face of his friend disappears and is replaced by another face. The face of his cousin, his second cousin, Colm McCartney. Not wanting to get ahead of myself, you will hear the poem in a moment. I will merely say that Colm McCartney refers to two things. One, Heaney's hanging out with poets and hanging out in other places, the kind of situation that was dealt with in summer 1969 when Heaney wrote about being in Madrid and reading Joyce and drinking wine and going to the museum rather than facing what was happening in Ireland. So that's one thing he will refer to. And the other thing his cousin Colin McCartney will refer to is the poem I just read the stranded loft beg. In this we have a poet standing accused by a character he wrote about of having failed him in the poem. But let me read section eight, this enormously powerful, at least at the ending, self-scrutiny of the Irish poet Seamus Heaney. Black water, white waves, furrows, snow-capped. A magpie flew from the basilica and staggered in the granite airy space I was staring into, on my knees at the hard mouth of St. Bridget's bed. I came to, and there at the bed's stone hub was my archaeologist, very like himself, with his scribe's face smiling its straight-lipped smile, starting at the sight of me with the same old pretense of amazement, 
so that the wing of Woodkern's hair fanned down over his brow. And then, as if a shower were blackening already blackened stubble, the dark weather of his unspoken pain came over him. A pilgrim bent and, whispering on his rounds inside the bed, passed between us slowly. Those dreamy stars had pulsed across the screen beside you in the ward. Your heartbeats, Tom, I mean, scared me the way they stripped things naked. My banter failed too early in that visit. I could not take my eyes off the machine. I had to head straight back to Dublin, guilty and empty, feeling I had said nothing and that, as usual, I had somehow broken covenants and failed an obligation. I half knew we would never meet again, did our long gaze and last handshake contain nothing to appease that recognition? Nothing at all, but familiar stone had me half numb to face the thing alone. I loved my still-faced archaeology, the small crab-apple physiognomies on high crosses, carved heads in abbeys. Why else? Dig in for years in that hard place in a muck of bigotry under the walls, picking through shards and Williamite cannonballs. But all that we just turned to banter too. I felt that I should have seen far more of you, and maybe would have. But dead at thirty-two, a poet, lucky poet, tell me why what seemed deserved and promised passed me by. I could not speak. I saw a horde of black basalt axe heads, smooth as a beetle's back, a cairn of stone force that might detonate the eggs of danger. And then I saw a face he had once given me, a plaster cast of an abbess, done by the Gowran master, mild-mouthed and cowled, a character of grace. Your gift will be a candle in our house. But he had gone. When I looked to meet his eyes, and hunkering instead there in his place was a bleeding, pale-faced boy plastered in mud. The red-hot pokers blazed a lovely red in Jerpoint the Sunday I was murdered, he said quietly. Now, do you remember? You were there with poets when you got the word, and stayed there with them while your own flesh and blood was carted to Balagi from the fuse. They showed more agitation at the news than you did. But they were getting crisis first-hand column. They had happened in on live sectarian assassination. I was dumb encountering what was destined. I kept seeing a gray stretch of Lough Beg and the strand empty at daybreak. I felt like the bottom of a dried-up lake. You saw that and you wrote that, not the fact. You confused evasion and artistic tact. The Protestant who shot me through the head I accuse 
directly, but indirectly you who now atone perhaps upon this bed for the way you whitewashed ugliness and drew the lovely blinds of the purgatorio and saccharined my death with morning dew. Then I seemed to awaken out of sleep among more pilgrims whom I did not know, drifting to the hostel for the night. That accusation, that self-accusation, made against Heaney and his poem by his dead cousin, Colin McCartney, by his dead cousin who he had intended to honor in the poem, but whom, in fact, he recognized, not, not McCartney, but his death was whitewashed, and that horrid word, saccharined, made sweet in the most artificial manner. That accusation comes to him through his cousin's words in his own poem. This is one of Heaney's poems accusing another poem. Jacques, said Emile Zola in the famous Dreyfus affair at the end of the 19th century. And here his cousin accuses the Protestants directly of having caused his death, but he accuses indirectly the poet of having whitewashed and saccharined and not fulfilled his poetic duty. In a way, this poem ironically fulfills that poetic duty. In this poem, as in the previous one, the violence, the horror, and the politics of the world intrude into Heaney's poems. He may not be like Goya, someone who can paint with his arms and elbows, fists and elbows, pardon me, flourish, but he, he can, like Goya, flourish the stained cape of his heart as history charged. He, he allows, in these poems from Station Island, history to come at him. He allows himself to be gored by history, by its happenings and his timid and circumspect response. Let me read again this final accusation, so powerful, of not only Heaney, but of all of us. As we move through a world in which evil people do evil things, but in which we too often stand by or whitewash or saccharine the heart of the injustice and inflicted suffering that is all around us. Here is his cousin. You saw that and you wrote that, not the fact. You confused evasion and artistic tact. The Protestant who shot me through the head I accused directly, but indirectly you who now atone perhaps upon this bed for the way you whitewashed ugliness and drew the lovely blinds of the purgatorio and saccharined my death with morning dew. Then I seemed to waken out of sleep among more pilgrims whom I did not know, drifting to the hostel 
for the night. And so we leave Heaney, who is a poet of great range, a poet who can write about nature and about love and about Greek tragedy, a poet who can write about Irish roots, about his family. But we leave Heaney understanding that he, in his poetry, confronts his failures as a human being and as a poet. That his poetry is a means to try to come to terms with what is so hard to come to terms with. That living in the 20th century with the struggles and injustice and the brutality of our times is not an easy business. And that too often we, like the poet, live indifferent, full of timid, circumspect involvement. Too often we whitewash and saccharine the difficult facts, the word of this last poem, the difficult facts which we must confront if we are to be honest and fully human.